Good morning, church. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke 4? We're going to continue in the series that we've been going straight through the, the Gospel of Luke. And we'll finish the chapter today, which means we will cover verses 31 all the way through verse 44. Hopefully you're there in Luke 4. I'll read it for us. Remember, as I read, this is God's holy and authoritative word. As he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. And said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them. And would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Pray with me, please. Oh, Father, as we come now to your word that you inspired Luke to write, we ask that the same spirit that inspired Luke would illuminate your word to us today, that you'd be active broadly and personally so that we all would leave here more like Jesus because we've sat under your word. Do it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at first glance, this passage seems to be mostly about demon possession. Or you may say it's, it's more about healing and demon possession is just one type of healing. And naturally, both of those are mentioned in this text and we'll address both, I promise, but Luke did not include these stories in here to instruct us on how to heal the sick 
or on how to exercise demons. Luke included these accounts for one primary purpose, to show us who Jesus is. He's the main point of this passage. You see, in in the previous passage that Jared preached from last week, Jesus announced his mission by reading from Isaiah 61. And then he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's quite a claim. Could any person actually fulfill that mission? The text today proclaims a resounding yes. Okay, if last week was the announcement of Christ's mission, Luke is showing us today that Jesus has the power and the authority to accomplish that mission. That's the main point of this text. And so as we come to it today, the invitation is for us to recognize who Jesus is and to embrace His power and authority in our lives. The stability and the strength of our faith rests upon the power and authority of Jesus. And the degree to which we experience and apprehend that truth is the degree to which we will experience peace and rest and confidence because we can't make our lives look the way we want them to look. And they sometimes seem so out of control. Who's in control? Christ is in control. And he's got all power and authority. Let me just illustrate the effect that authority can have on our peace. Have you ever experienced moment-changing, situation-shaping authority? We have. I'm going to tell you a story. It was June of 27, 2005 in Baptist Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was the day our son James was born. Everything was going just fine as we arrived at the hospital. We were in the labor and delivery room. Notice I didn't say we were in labor, only Jesus was in, that Gino was in labor. But we were in the labor and delivery room, and the only problem we were facing at that time was the ineffectiveness of the epidural. The epidural completely numbed Gina from the knees down. I don't know how familiar you are with birthing process. That's really unhelpful. What you're probably not tracking, I wasn't tracking it until the moment happened, is just how unhelpful that is. Not only did she feel everything that we intended for her not to feel, but because her legs were numb, she had no control over her legs either. So, yeah, yeah, it was, but God was good. And it was the only problem that we faced, we thought. No other challenges. And then it came time for James to arrive. The doctor was nowhere to be seen. I mean, nowhere to be seen. They actually said to us, Gina, can you slow down? (laughs) Now, I don't know how to slow down birth and a baby, but that's probably less important 
Gina didn't know how to slow down birth and a baby, and this baby was coming. And so here's what the nurse said to us, guys. The nurse said to us, listen, I can deliver this baby. I don't want to deliver this baby, but I can deliver this baby. And at that point, Gina was fine whether the nurse, she actually said, you could deliver this baby, the janitor could deliver this baby, this baby's coming. As James really began to enter this world, we got word the doctor was on his way. See, you see, he was in an emergency C-section, and it was touch and go there, so he couldn't leave that. But we knew he was coming, and so everybody was just waiting and waiting and waiting for Dr. Simmons to arrive. Finally, here's what happened. The two, two nurses, I don't know they were nurses. Let's just assume they were nurses. They're holding like this, this gown, but they're holding it across the door. So when he, all he has to do is walk through the door into his medical cape. And as he, he, he wears his medical cape, he walks in. Everybody just relaxes. Now, nothing had changed in the situation. The baby was still coming. But everything had changed in how we experienced the situation. Because the guy who could run the show was there. Everything went fine. James is still here. Some of you know him. Thank God for James. The, <laughs> the point of the story is this. Dr. Simmons had the needed power and authority for all of us to experience peace even in our chaos. And that is precisely what is happening here. Jesus' power and authority is on display. He's not like anyone else in the room. He's not like anyone else then or anyone else now. And getting a grasp on comprehending his power and authority is pivotal in Luke's mind if we're going to get who Jesus really is. So before we dive in to really tease that out and apply that to our lives, I want to clear the table of a couple honest and obvious questions that probably come up as we read this text. Let me hit just three questions that we perhaps should be asking as we read this text before we get to the main idea. First, how should we relate to demons? Now, I cannot possibly present a satisfying demonology this morning. I don't have the time, nor is that what this passage is primarily about. But it's a fair question, so let me at least say this. In his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Listen, they don't care if we ignore them or obsess about them so long as we don't think rightly about them. That's their goal. And so what does thinking rightly about demons look like? Here's five thoughts, very brief. First, demons are real. Disbelieving their existence, 
provides you zero protection from that. Second, demons mean you harm. They are never on your side, no matter what lies or persuasion they attempt to give you. Third, maybe most importantly so far, the born-again Christian need not fear demons. Why? All authority and all power on heaven and on earth has been given to our Savior, and you are in Him. We don't need to fear them. Four, we must not think of them too much or ignore them altogether. It's not good when they fill our thoughts or when they're completely absent from our thoughts. And then fifth, demons are finite. And that includes Satan. They are created beings. None of them can be in more than one place at one time. They're not like God. No one is like God. Okay? So much more could be said about demons, but I got, I've got to leave it there. Let me recommend to you a series we did here from this pulpit in 2019 called This World with Devils Filled, where we, we spent some extended time preaching on this topic. I recommend it to you. We'll include it in the Tuesday announcement email. All right? How should we relate to demons? Let's start with that. Second, why does Jesus silence the demons when they're telling the truth? In verse 35, he commands the demon to be silent. Then again in verse 41, he rebukes them because they know who he is. Now here is the authoritative answer on this. We don't know. We can surmise, and I'm going to surmise a little bit, but we don't know for sure. Here's what we know, that there is a pattern of this, not only in the Gospels, but in Acts. There's a pattern when demons start to proclaim the Gospel for Jesus and the apostles to shut them up. So here's a musing. Not something that's funny, but A space musing. Have you ever wanted someone to stop advocating for you. Let me, let me put it this way. Has there ever been someone who supported a position that you were trying to advocate, but because of their terrible reputation and the way that they talk, you're just like, I, I would be much stronger in my position if you would just be quiet. Listen, here's what we know. Jesus does not seem to want nor need the voices of the demons on his side. He doesn't need them to advocate for him. He'll advocate for himself. Thank you very much. And he will reveal himself in his way, in his timing, which will be the perfect way and the perfect timing. But let me note something that's implied in the question and explicit here in the text. The demons are not confused about who Jesus is. You remember last week in the text, the crowd was wondering how Joseph's boy could be teaching like this. They couldn't piece it together. The demons are not struggling to piece it together. They know who he is, and even as they speak, 
They must bend the knee of their voices to declare it. Even there, they have no dominion. When they speak about Christ, they must tell the truth. Third, how should we relate to healing? That's the other miracle here. How should we relate to healing? Verse 40 tells us that Jesus healed everyone who was brought to him. Now, we believe that God, <clears throat> pardon me, God still has the power to heal miraculously. There are testimonies scattered throughout this church, in this room today, of miraculous healing. We also know that God has not guaranteed miraculous healing for His people, nor is miraculous healing embedded in the gospel promises that He has for us. We have stories scattered throughout this room for people who have prayed or maybe are praying for healing, where God has chosen not to heal. So what do we do with that? It's not unique to us in our time. During His earthly ministry, Christ's healing was prevalent. But even in Acts, we see sickness as we see it now. Sometimes God heals miraculously. Sometimes He heals through more natural means. And sometimes He allows sickness to take its course. Church, God can still heal and we ought to pray to that end. But choosing not to heal is not a failure of power, authority, or love on His part. Nor is the presence of healing, the fact that He has healed, some guarantee of deeper spiritual work in a person's life. It didn't say here that he healed all those who believed in him. He said he healed all who they brought. So neither our confidence nor our hope ought to be placed upon the healing itself, but upon the one who has the power to heal, whether he should choose to do it or not. So we pray full of faith, asking if God would heal, knowing that it is up to His wisdom and His will and His authority whether He does so or not. Okay, that's just clear on the table. You still with me? Good. Let's get to the main point of this text. Luke's primary purpose is to reveal to us who Jesus really is. I've got four points for this. They're all just about as long as those other ones. I promise I'll be done in time. Point number one, his power and authority are evidence. As we've seen so far, his power and authority demonstrate, they are evidence of who he is. And in the wake of his power, the demons come forth proclaiming who he is. But the people are all confused. You saw it last week here in this, in this passage in verse 36. The people declare, what is this word? They don't have a category for what they're seeing, for this kind of authority. 
The evidence reveals something that's beyond their imagination. He's not like anything they've ever seen before, and they don't know what to do with him. But they know this, they love the signs. They love somebody who can heal. They love somebody who can exercise demons. This is a long-standing pattern in the Gospels and after. People love when Jesus shows signs. In Luke 11, the people once again demand that Jesus produces a sign, but there he refuses. On what grounds? He's already provided signs over and over and over again, including Luke 4. This has already happened, but people still want more signs. He had given any honest person more than enough evidence to convince them, unless, of course, they were committed to not being convinced. You see, it raises a question for us today. Have you seen evidence of the person and work of Jesus Christ? What signs has He already shown to you? Perhaps it's the way He engaged you during the singing today. Perhaps it's the fact that you're even in church today. There are moments in each of our lives that can only be explained by a living, personal, powerful God. How will you respond to that? Are you willing to take action on what Jesus has already shown you? Are you willing to embrace Him? to surrender to His power and authority as the only good for you today? If you don't know Christ, are you willing to acknowledge that He's been reaching out to you, giving you signs, giving you wonders to stir your faith that you may believe? And if you do know Christ, are you willing to recall the evidence to respond to the evidence in a way that strengthens your confidence and your faith in Him. Friends, don't ignore the evidence the Lord has already provided. Any objective look at His ministry, at His resurrection, at His activity in the lives of those even here in this room will convince you they are sufficient evidence for His power and His authority. Number two, His power and authority are expansive. You remember Dr. Simmons in Little Rock, Arkansas. Unlike the power he brought into that labor and delivery room, Jesus' power and authority is not limited to a single area of expertise. In verse 35, again in verse 41, we see His power and authority over the demonic realm. We see His power over our physical well-being when He protects the man from injury in verse 35 and when He heals Simon's mother-in-law in verse 39. 
Elsewhere in the gospel, we see his power and authority over storms, over blindness and paralysis. We see his authority over creation and death itself. Jesus' authority knows no limits. There is nothing, I understand I'm using categorical language, there is nothing on the earth or in all of creation that exists outside of His authority. You'll, you'll remember Kuiper's famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christian, what ails you today? What are you most afraid of? What freezes you in your place with doubt or anxiety? You can be certain that whatever just came to mind is entirely under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That thing that came to mind has no power over Jesus. And in Christ, it need not have ultimate power over you. It will do God's bidding in your life. And when it's done doing God's bidding, it will be gone. It has to obey God because His power and His authority are expansive and cover everything. Number three, His power and authority are a great comfort. Now, I won't lie to you. To really experience great comfort from Jesus' power and authority takes a great degree of faith. We've got to apply a whole lot of truth that we know to be comforted at times. Now, naturally, we find comfort when He calms the storms or when He heals the sick or when He raises the dead. At those times, His power and authority are in keeping with our desired outcomes. Jesus exercises His power in line with what we want, and therefore we are comforted. Praise God. But what are we to do when Jesus' power and authority are not in line with what we desire? That person that I like isn't interested in me. That group of friends doesn't treat me the way I wish they would. I tried for that job or that promotion, and someone else keeps getting it. I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal, that He would provide a child, that He would restore that relationship. We know He's able, but He sometimes, perhaps often, says no. How do we find comfort in that? Friends, with, with, with Christ's power and authority firmly ensconced in our minds, we can know beyond any doubt whatever is happening, He's in total control. He's not caught off guard 
He's not powerless in troubled relationships. He's not surprised at brokenness. His authority stretches even to the tragic. His character is good. His work is good. Even, we say, by faith in our disappointments. When we can't trace His goodness, we can have confidence that He is at work in all things. Because the one who has power and the one who has authority is the one who is holding all things together by the word of His power. Luke takes extended time to establish the power and the authority of Jesus because it serves as a foundation for our faith. It's the explanation eventually for how the Son of God could die. He was in charge when he died. And it's the answer to a thousand why questions when we struggle. The Savior we love is far more than a good person who did a good thing in sacrificing himself. He's the one to whom all power and authority in heaven and on earth have been given. It's why Romans 11 ends with this, about this Jesus. It's for from him and through him and to him are some things, are most things, are all things, even the things that hurt us most. And when we realize this, when we embrace this truth, that this powerful and authoritative Jesus loves us, that He's for us, that He helps us, oh friends, when we get that, really get it on the ground, there is great comfort and authority in whatever He plans for us. Then lastly, number four, his power and authority are word-focused. Luke ends the chapter by highlighting for us just how focused the mission of Jesus was. They try to keep him in verse 42. They try to keep him in Capernaum. But look at verses 43 and 44. Here's what he says. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For for I was sent for this purpose. And he was healing. He was exercising demons. No, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now those in Capernaum relished his power and authority. But these verses make it very, very clear Jesus' mission was not primarily demon deliverer or physical healer. He did not stay to be put in service for how they wanted to use him. He was resolute in being word-centered and gospel-focused. And this does not diminish the miracles. It simply places them in a context Jesus would not be turned into a dog and pony show. He was not sent to make others more comfortable, though he delighted to do so. He was sent to seek and save the lost. 
and miracles alone were not going to get him there. He was to preach the good news of salvation as he continued on his way to Jerusalem because there was a cross waiting for him there that would get him to that goal. And this ministry model is what he sets out for us. It's, it's the ministry model the church should follow. There are many things that a church can do. And a church ought to do many of them, but not at the expense of the main thing, which is to preach the Word, to proclaim the gospel, and then to let Christ do His work with the Word after it's preached. And we've got to be careful in our own lives that we not seek to put Jesus to our service to do what we want Him to do, but that we seek to surrender to Him, putting ourselves to His service. We can't just pull Jesus out of our pockets when it serves us like He's some genie who grants wishes. He's not to be tamed or manipulated. He's to be worshipped. And Luke 4 is not some audition for the role of Savior, and Jesus hopes we give it to Him. It is revelation as Messiah and Savior that's designed to help us trust and embrace His power and authority in and over our lives. In The Radical Cross, a wonderful book, Tozer reflects upon how mankind typically relates to Christ's power and authority, and he nails our often mixed motivation. He says, we want to keep some authority for ourselves. We cannot agree that the final key to our lives should be turned over to Jesus Christ. Brethren, we want to have dual controls. Let the Lord run it, but keep a hand on the controls just in case the Lord should fail. When I shared that with someone, he said, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> on the authority of everything contained in the Word of God, I can tell you, Jesus will not fail you. You can let go. Your hand at the controls is not serving you. It is not helping. Jesus may not do all you hope He'll do, but that's because in His manifold wisdom, which is higher than we could possibly comprehend, He's doing something better. He's doing something better bigger. He's doing something beyond what you can now see. As I reflected on this, even in writing this sermon, many things came to my mind, things I prayed for, that I am currently glad God said no to. I suspect that's true of you. And when we all get to the other side, and we're standing in His presence, we're going to be grateful for a good many more that he said no to because we see dimly now, but we will see clearly then. 
I'd like to invite the band to come join me on stage. Let me close with this. You remember that labor and delivery room in 2005. It was tense. It was chaotic until Dr. Simmons showed up. Everyone knew at that point it was going to be okay. In your chaos, in your fears, in your desires, in your disappointments, recognize that Jesus is already in the room. He possesses all power and authority. And so what do we do? We run to Christ, the strong tower and the refuge for your souls. We run to Christ, as Psalm 25 says, for He will hide you in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal you under the cover of His tent. He will lift you high upon a rock. And so we say, yes, this is Joseph and Mary's son. Yes, this is the carpenter from Galilee who also happens to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. His is all the power and all the authority. And God's people are left to say, amen.